All right, well, welcome to 633. We're glad you're here tonight. This is an interview format, and this is Natasha Crane. Would everybody say a big welcome to Natasha Crane? Thank you. This, uh, this evening has been a long time in the making. We, uh, Natasha's been very busy. She's, I heard you interviewed on Focus on the Family. I know you have a new book coming out, uh, a third book, How to Talk to Your Kids About Jesus. Is that the title? Close, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. Talking With Your Kids About Jesus, and that's the spring of next year? Right, it comes out in March. So I know writing a book, I've written one book, and I know it's, a, it's quite a venture to write a book. So I know it's very time-consuming, but thank you for making some time, Natasha, to be with us tonight. Uh, before we get into the interview, I was sharing with you uh, last time we had a 633, we had J.P. Moreland, Dr. J.P. Moreland here, and he accused you of being a Russian spy. So, do you have any comment? Well, I think that a true Russian spy would have no comment, so I'll leave that with you to take it as you will. So, JP, if you watch this, she has no comment to what you said. <laughs> well, Natasha, we're excited that you're here, and uh, this is a topic that I think should be near and dear to everyone's heart, uh, because it is about passing on to the next generation the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In the Old and New Testament, uh, we're instructed as parents and grandparents to uh, talk to our children about God, to talk to our children about what's important. A lot of us, you know, have Deuteronomy 6 in our hearts where on the highways and the byways, in the morning and the evening, on the doorposts and so forth, we're supposed to be passing on the faith to our children and to our grandchildren. And we live in an increasingly secular world. Uh, the U.S. is uh, certainly, you know, it, it's, been, it's seen some better days, spiritually speaking. There's a Pew Research poll that came out that said uh, in the last decade, I think is the stat, uh, church attendance in America is down 10%, uh, which is staggering compared to previous uh, measurements that they've done. And I'm sure that you're probably up on this, but the statistics of uh, kids that go to secular universities and stuff like that, do you have any comments on you know, just some of those things that you've learned over time. In terms of what? Just how many are walking away from their faith. and Oh, for, for sure. So at least 60% of kids are walking away from faith today. And it's interesting because I think that research studies have a tendency to kind of go in one ear and out the other when we hear them, right? Because we hear so many things and you kind of think, oh, that, that's alarmist, that's extreme. But independent research companies over the last decade especially have done this research over and over again, and consistently, every time they find that at least 60% of kids are walking away from their faith by their early 20s. So it's not a question, no one's wondering, you know, is that really true, is there really a youth exodus from Christianity? No one's asking that question. The only question is, how large is it? Is it more like 60% or 90%? And that's kind of the range that they find with all of these studies. So what you're doing in terms of just you know, how you're blogging and, and with your books and what you're teaching is important. Let me just kind of give you the uh, a little background on Natasha. So she's a national speaker, author, and blogger, passionate about equipping parents and uh, helping parents to raise their kids with an understanding of how to make a case for the Christian faith, the historic Christian faith, how to defend it. And I like, you know, some of the terminology you use about, you know, that it's their own faith, that it's a faith that they are confident. It's a confident faith. And we serve a God that has left his fingerprints everywhere. 
Um, he has given us his word. He entered into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. So we should be excited about our faith, but it seems like this topic sometimes is a little bit overwhelming to people. But anyway, let me go on with your bio so people can get a little bit more of an understanding of who you are. So how to defend their faith in an increasing, increasingly secular world. Natasha is the author of two apologetics books for kids and really for parents. Uh, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side is one of her books and Talking with Your Kids About God. And the third book we've already talked about, which is, say it again. Talking with Your Kids About Jesus. Okay. Much like the Talking with Your Kids About God, except about Jesus specifically. Natasha has been featured on radio shows nationwide, including Focus on the Family. She has an MBA from UCLA um, in marketing. And uh, so if you need something marketed, Natasha is your gal. And she also has a certificate in Christian apologetics from Biola University and a former uh, marketing executive, adjunct professor. Uh, Natasha lives here in Southern California with her husband, and you have three kids. What's the ages of your kids, just out of curiosity? I have twins who are 10. They're a boy and a girl and a nine-year-old. So 10 and nine. So you're kind of right in this right now, and I'm sure that's part of what motivated you to, uh, to move into this area. All right, so Natasha, uh, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're raising kids. Uh, you want them to have a confident faith, but you obviously didn't set out to be an apologist, right? That wasn't your uh, career course. You were doing marketing. Um, tell us a little bit about your story. Like, how did you end up writing books about apologetics? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I never set out to be a writer or a speaker, and I was just commenting right before we came up here. I'm actually an introvert, <laughs> very much an introvert, so it's hard for me to, to get up in, in front of audiences, but uh, kind of had a God thing that happened, and actually it started eight years ago this week. Um, I had three kids who were three and under at the time, and if anyone in here has kids in that age range, you probably know that it can be a little overwhelming, a little bit mundane sometimes, lots of diaper changing and potty training and these kinds of things. And so it's also hard to get out of the house and connect with other people, especially getting to Bible studies and things like that when you have kids at that, in that age range. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to start a blog because that's a way that I can connect with people right from my own house. See, it's another introvert thing, right? And so in 2011, everyone was starting a blog. It was a really common thing. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to start this thing about Christian parenting. I'm just going to talk about simple topics, things that we're going to do to raise our kids to know and love Jesus. So I started this blog called Christian Mom Thoughts. It's still there. If you go to the site, I still blog to this day. And it turned out great. It turned out to be everything that I hoped it would. I was meeting a lot of people online. We were exchanging ideas. But something unexpected happened along the way. And that's that my audience really grew. And as it grew, people were sharing my blog posts. And I started getting a ton of comments from skeptics of Christianity, atheists and people from other religions, just all across the board. And they were leaving comments on my blog saying things like, don't you know there's no evidence for the existence of God? Or there's not a shred of evidence that Jesus even existed as a person in history. The Bible's filled with errors and contradictions. We don't even know what the authors originally said. It's been copied over and over so many times. So I was hearing these things. I was getting this steady flow of comments like that. And I was raised in the church. I had a wonderful Christian family, had always been a Christian, never left the faith, anything like that. I wasn't one of the statistics. But I got to tell you, I had no idea how to answer those questions. Of course, I believed in God. But to try to respond to someone who said there's no evidence for God's existence, I, don't, I didn't know what to say to that other than, well, I believe. And I realized my kids are growing up in a completely different world 
than the one in which I grew up. And I'm sure some of you probably feel that as well. Things have changed so much. So I went looking for answers, and I discovered what's called apologetics. If that's a new term for you, it's how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. And so I started looking into these answers. I became very passionate in reading and everything I get my hands on about apologetics and theology, and I transformed my blog into a place where I started writing about these subjects for parents and saying, hey, this is the stuff that skeptics are saying, and here's what we need to do to equip our kids with an understanding of how to respond. And so my audience grew through that, and eventually that gave me the opportunity to write some apologetics books for parents, and now here I am, the introvert, sitting up here talking <laughs> about it too. So God, God has some interesting ways of doing things yes. and, and taking you places that you wouldn't expect. Amen. He takes us out of our comfort zones constantly, Absolutely. doesn't he? So uh, I would say as a pastor, you know, I've been a pastor for a couple of decades now. My kids are older. Um, I had a passion for apologetics as well. But I think we would all say that the church, generally speaking, doesn't do a great job of equipping our young people. Sometimes, you know, we think about Sunday school and, and they know the stories of Jonah and, you know, they, they know the big stories in the Bible, so to speak. But when it comes to how to think about defending their faith, and, you know, maybe someone who grew up in a Christian family, um, this, is, this is everything that they've been used to, and now all of a sudden they end up, you know, with a friend who says, well, what about this, what about that? And all of a sudden now these, uh, these question marks come, and I, th I think we'd have to grade ourselves pretty poorly in terms of thinking about how to equip our kids uh, we should be thinking from a relatively young age. I mean, your kids are 9 and 10. And, uh, you know, with social media and the way that that's blown up and everything that's going on, th inevitably, this is going to come their way. So let me ask you a second question. What do you hope other parents will learn from your story? And I'm kind of curious about the timing. So, you know, obviously, I, I would imagine you had small kids and you were doing this blogging and then you went and got a certificate in apologetics, so there's a little bit that has happened over time. Tell us a little bit about that, and then what do you want parents to learn from your story? Yeah, well, after a while, when I had really been digging into these answers, I realized that I was kind of just picking them off as I went, you know, and, and figuring out, okay, well, somebody is claiming that we don't know what the Bible originally said. I need to go and learn about that one. But at some point, you wonder what you, it, what you don't know that you don't know, right? And so I decided that to sign up for this Biola Apologetic Certificate, which anyone can sign up for. Uh, and it's, it's just a way that you can listen to several lectures and you can take some quizzes. And it's just a kind of a way to formalize what you're learning. And so that would kind of became part of what I was doing to, to teach myself over time. So that was uh, probably about four years into it that I started to do that. And, and to answer your question about what I hope people take from my story, that's actually a really good question because I think sometimes when we hear people share a story, it's kind of a removed third-person experience where you say, oh, that's interesting what happened to that person and what they did with it. But the reason that I get up here and go other places to share my story is very much because I think it is really relevant to parents and grandparents and others who are spiritual influencers in the lives of kids. And we kind of touched on this at the beginning already, but with these studies showing that at least 60% of kids are walking away, it's interesting because the researchers don't just stop there. They don't say, wow, there's a big problem out here, and you know, what are we going to do about it? They dig in, and they say, okay, well, what are the reasons why are kids walking away? And when you look at those reasons, overwhelmingly, it is the intellectual challenges to faith. 
that I mentioned earlier that I am experiencing on my blog. So just because you're a parent who maybe hasn't heard the challenges firsthand, it doesn't mean that your kids aren't hearing them. So all of these things that I happen to have a front row seat to that God kind of brought my way, these are the exact same things that are turning kids away from faith that they quote in these studies, that you know there's no evidence for God's existence or that science and faith are somehow opposed, all these questions. So that's the first thing that I really want parents to take away, that what happened to me is sort of symbolic in a way of what is happening to so many other kids out there when they grow up and leave home and just haven't been equipped with this same understanding. And the second thing that I want people to take away is that I'm no one special. I don't have, you know, a PhD in theology, or apologetics, anything like that. I'm just an average parent, just like anyone else. And 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us and to do it with gentleness and respect. It doesn't mean if you happen to have some time left over at the end of the week or if you feel like it or if you're interested in apologetics or any of those things. It's not just left for the people who are academics. This is every single one of us should be prepared prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. As parents and grandparents, we should just have an even greater sense of urgency. And Natasha, I would say that we have, uh, again, I'm just going to talk about the, the church in the U.S. We have aimed pretty low when it comes to intellectual uh, challenges and saying, hey, let's raise the bar instead of watering down the message or making it easy for every believer uh, to give them a 20-minute sermonette when they walk in the church, give them just kind of the, the minimum so that they can feel good, that's not going to really root and ground people in their faith. And, and I think we need to ask the Lord, frankly, for forgiveness. And I'm talking about from a pastoral leadership level. We need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for setting the bar so low because we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, which, by the way, means your intellectual capacities. And I think that some of you young ones in the room tonight should be thinking about learning Greek and Hebrew. You should be learning about church history. Um, you should be learning, thinking about whether or not God would call you to a robust intellectual defense of the historic Christian faith. Because you are needed out there. And frankly, this, this doesn't come up as much as it should but we're supposed to love God with all of our mind and the evidences are out there and the evidences are actually on our side. And so I would challenge you tonight. I want to challenge you parents. And, and I, I know sometimes, you know, thinking about, I'm sure your schedule is pretty busy to go and get a certificate in apologetics. And sometimes people think about this and they're like, well, you know, how can I squeeze in some extra moments? But we usually find time for what's important to us, right? We find time to watch that TV show or we find time to do that hobby. And so if we really believe that there are not only temporal but eternal consequences to our decisions, I think as parents and grandparents, we need to, we need to tighten up the ship and, and get better at this. Would you not agree? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I think it's just an adjustment of priorities. Everyone always says, oh, it's just so hard. There's so little time. I got to tell you, when I was really first fired up about this subject, I was drying my hair while reading books on my iPad. You know, every time I had my iPad with me all the time so that in the grocery store lines while I was waiting, I would flip open a book. If you, you know, I, I kind of liken it to if you find out your kid has a severe peanut allergy all of a sudden, are you going to say, well, we have a, lo a lot of soccer games this week, so I don't have time to really think about it. No, you sense that this is dire, that this is so important. You need to learn everything about that so that you can do what it takes to save your kid's life. 
In here, we're talking about their eternal salvation, and it's no different in this case. So you have to think of it just in terms of reprioritizing. We are all given the same amount of time. There are the same amount of hours in every day. It's how we choose to use them. And the good news is that with all the technology that could be used for you know, not so great things, there's accessibility to so much information now. There's so many websites that you can go to that are solid. There's so many vehicles for learning. It doesn't have to be in a classroom anymore. It doesn't have to be uh, that you got to drive 45 minutes to go for a two-hour lecture. You can get this anywhere. Now, I was, just, I was perusing through your book, uh, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, and it was phenomenal. The information that you have in there on apologetics arguments is phenomenal. It's so good. And, uh, you know, it would probably take the average person in here, you know, maybe just a, a week to read through that book. And, uh, you know, it is really up to us to get stirred up and fired up. All right, with the rest of our time tonight, we're going to dig into what it means to equip your kids to face today's challenges. As a starting point, uh, I want you to give parents the big picture of what a healthy approach to what we're talking about tonight. What does that look like from a big picture standpoint? Yeah, that, that, that's a good, a, a good way to look at it because I think sometimes it gets overwhelming when you dive right into details, especially if this is a subject that's new to you. It kind of feels like, oh, wow, this is a lot of information. I do think that there are some really helpful ways of looking at this at, at a big picture level. And, and how I like to think about it is to think for a second with me about a mountain. Think of Mount Everest, for example. Tallest mountain in the world. Lots of people want to climb Mount Everest. If you know anything about it, you know that you have to do all kinds of preparations. People die trying this all the time. So very difficult kind of task. Now, I want you to think, for example, if you had a neighbor who's walking out to their mailbox, and you're walking out at the same time, you get into small talk, and your neighbor tells you that they're going to climb Mount Everest, and they're going to start preparing for it, and they say, yeah, I'm really excited, and you're going to see me doing some you know, exercise out and around. You say, really? Okay, so what kind of things are you going to do? And your neighbor tells you, well, you know, I, I do this thing where I have a one-pound weight for my arm strength, and I know that arm strength is going to be really important to get up that mountain, so I'm going to do two-pound arm weights. And you're kind of thinking inside, okay, this isn't sounding good. And then they say, but I know, I know, I need lots of leg strength as well. And so I'm going to get out my roller skates, and I'm going to roller skate around the neighborhood because that's what's familiar to me, and I know that's going to just work for my legs. And now you're really concerned. And then they go on to tell you, and I know I need mental strength too, so I'm going to be doing a lot of yoga outside. Now, if your neighbor said these things to you, what would you think? They're crazy, right? They're going to die on the mountain. They're absolutely going to die on the mountain because we all recognize intuitively that you can't just prepare for something difficult by doing more, some amount of more. You can't just do whatever happens to be familiar to you based on how you grew up or what you like to do, what you feel comfortable doing, how much time you think you have. None of those things are going to adequately prepare you for the challenge. And so in the same way... There is a Mount Everest of faith challenges out there today, and we need to understand what that mountain looks like. So that's number one. We have to have an understanding of the challenges. And number two, we have to prepare kids accordingly for that. So know the challenges and then equip them specifically. Don't just plan to do more, whatever that might be for you, and don't just try to do what's familiar. Do more of the right kind of thing for the specific challenge. And if we don't do that, we're basically sending our kids to a Mount Everest of faith challenges with a few jumping jacks, and it's so, not enough. Amen. So if we can drill down on that, I know you kind of have like a four-part framework that helps explain a little bit more of that big picture Walk us through that so we can get some detail on, you know, how do we get going in that 
How do we know what the target is, which I think you've painted it for us, and now give us some specifics on, uh, on that four-part framework. Yeah, so I like to, if anyone has heard the word apologetics before, I realize it's probably new for some people. If you've heard it, there's one word that usually comes to mind. What is it? Defending? Defense, De yeah. Defense, defending, yeah. And so that's kind of the, the core of apologetics, but it's kind of like if you said, well, I want to teach my kids algebra, for example. Well, how do you do that? You break it down into addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. In the same way, I think there are really four key areas of apologetics. So as you're thinking about, okay, how am I going to apply this in my kids' lives or grandkids' lives, I think of it as what Christianity teaches, why you should believe it, what others believe, and answering challenges. So I think we're going to go through those in, in some detail here, but just to describe them a little bit so you, you see where I'm going with this. The first part, what Christianity teaches, is really just kind of the core, what, what does the Bible actually say? And not just at a real cursory level, but getting deeper into it and helping kids to deeply and accurately understand their faith. Because you cannot defend your faith if you can't define it. This is a really key starting place. And I think you guys would probably agree with me. How many of you would say you feel like the vast majority of kids growing up in church today and graduating from high school after being in a Christian home understand really deeply the Christian faith and theology? Mm -hmm. There aren't many. Do you remember some talks that Josh McDowell gave over the years? And he would say he would go into uh, venues where they would have the top 10% of uh, like a youth pastor would send his top 10% of his youth group, and Josh would ask a simple question about, um, you know, why do you believe Christianity is true? And he would be amazed that the top 10% of those sent from youth groups would talk about their feelings. They would talk about, you know, stuff that was not evidential. It wasn't really anything having to do with, you know, history or manuscript evidence or archaeology. It was all because I think, feel it's true. And he said he was just appalled at the lack of um, a really thought-through faith. And I think right. that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's kind of that what, and that segues into kind of what you're talking about with the why, right? Why should we believe it? You could do that first step, the what, with any religion, really. You could say, okay, well, what does Islam teach? You know, just understanding that accurately. But when we talk about the why, it's like you're saying, like, what evidence is there for the truth of Christianity? Why should we actually believe this is true? And to me, this is actually the most important of the four parts in terms of being equipped in today's world. Because if you don't understand the why, you're not really going to value your faith. You can teach your kids how to defend Christianity, just like you could teach them to defend any other worldview. But unless they believe it's true, it's not going to be worthwhile it's not going to be valued. It's only when they have this deep conviction that, yes, this is true, I know it's true, in my heart of hearts I know it's true, and in my mind I know it's true, that they're going to be willing to do the hard work of defending their faith. So that's a key, key second part of it. And there's so much that I can say on that one, but I know we're going to come back to them. But Natasha, I think, I think what you said is important. Maybe a, a few times in this evening we can just kind of meditate on this question. Like if I ask someone... Um, who I know closely, the why question, if I drop that in their lap, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe this is true? I wonder what they would give back to me. And that would be a good measurement tonight to, to think for yourself or someone that you might be watching someone who's just kind of floundering out there 
And you're, you're wondering, well, why is this happening? Well, this could be a big reason. They, they're not even sure why they believe what they believe. They just kind of have gone with the flow type of thing. So go on. That's, abs that's absolutely hugely true. And just to, to piggyback on that a little bit, I think the vast majority of people that I've seen, when you ask why are you a Christian, it's very much based on personal experience. It's, yeah. it's a testimony kind of answer. And a lot of times people get kind of upset when you, when you say that because they say, well, my testimony is important. And it absolutely is. Our experience and our relationship with Jesus is of utmost importance. But we have to remember we cannot just export or experience to someone else. If your child comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I feel like I just don't feel God's presence when I pray. I feel like I'm praying to the wall, and I just don't feel like he's there. How do I know that he's actually real? And your answer is along the lines of, well, I've had some really powerful experiences in my life. That's just not that compelling for mm -hmm. your kid. It's not compelling for adults, other, other people who are non-believers. People need to be able to see some objective evidence. And Natasha, and, and part of that is because uh, I could talk to a Mormon or a Hindu or a Buddhist who can tell me about their experiences. I was interacting with a person, and uh, I was talking about a trip that I had taken to Israel. And I said that, you know, one of the special moments in Israel was this location and, you know, talking about the experience. And that, that person responded, well, one of my greatest moments in my spiritual journey was a, at an Indian medicine wheel. And it's like, oh. <laughs> you know, here I was talking about my experience in Israel at some of these archaeological sites that give great apologetic strength to our faith. And then this person brought up something about the new age that was just as powerful of an experience for them. So what's my argument now? Well, I think my experience was more powerful at the, at, at the empty tomb. Or my experience was more powerful at the, you know, the Dead Sea or whatever I wanted to bring up. Again, an appeal to experience can be important, but it, it can't be the main argument for the faith. And I, and I think that's what Josh McDowell found when he was asking kids in youth groups about why they believe Christianity is true. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And especially in, in some faiths, that experience is, is the most important thing, especially for Mormons. Um, that's, that's very much part of the witness. I've had those kinds of conversations, like you're saying, and it, it, you, you go into the evidence for the truth of Mormonism and the evidence for the truth of Christianity, and at the end of the day, many Mormons will say, well, I know because I, I've had this burning in my bosom, which is an expression for I felt it to be true. There's no tiebreaker for feelings, so that's... And, and you're right. I've had those kind of conversations, too, and uh, I had uh, in, in the business world that I was in, I was in sales. You were in marketing. And I had, uh, my VP of sales was a Mormon bishop. And we had a lot of spirited debate, and it was always friendly and, and good debate. And so I had brought him a book on um, the unmasking the book of Abraham and showing that where Joseph Smith had gotten the documents, and they were funerary documents from Egypt. They had nothing to do with the Book of Mormon, nothing to do with his translation. And the evidence was laid out by a former Mormon. And he went through the book, he brought over uh, another leader from uh, the church, and they looked at the book, and ultimately he told me that um, it doesn't matter what this book says or what evidence it shows, he's going to believe Mormonism no matter what. So his experience was really all that mattered, and that's what he appealed to. So that's, that is, again, important. We're not dismissing your testimony, but we are saying 
that's not going to hold the day in an argument where someone else can make an appeal to a feeling that they've had as well. All right, let's, uh, let's give, do you have a few examples of the why that you wanted to bring out in terms of just anything else you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think that when we talk about why and we talk about what, what we're talking about is objective evidence. It's what we can point to outside of ourselves that we can put on this table and say, let's all look here regardless of what we've experienced. So some of the big questions, if I could point you to three major questions that kind of point to the truth of Christianity overall. Number one is what evidence is there for God's existence? This is, the, this is the biggest, most foundational question of all because we don't need to talk about questions of Jesus or questions about the Bible if there's no evidence that God even exists. So we have to really start there. And this is a really, really important starting place that a lot of times I find Christians kind of skip over because we think that we're automatically talking about the Bible and verses. And so many times today, people are like, I don't even believe that God exists. And Christians oftentimes don't know what to do with that. So again, going back to some of this research, and research sites can be really helpful in understanding these trends what you see is that fewer and fewer people are identifying as Christians and when you look at where those people are going so what's on the uptick if Christians are on the down tick if that's a word uh, what you see is that people are becoming atheists agnostic and what researchers call nothing in particular which is they don't identify They're as the nuns any, the nuns the n-o-n-e-s so have you guys <laughs> heard this the nuns uh, are becoming the biggest category they believe in nothing that's how they identify now. If they were asked about their belief systems, if they were asked about what would they put on a medical form, who might they want to talk to in this kind of, kind of situation, they just say that they're a nun. They're nothing. That's, that's, is that the number one growing category now? It is. It's the number one growing category. It's an interesting group because some of them still hold on to a belief in God, but usually it's more like a higher power something that's kind of broad like that nothing very specific but many of them have eschewed any idea of god completely and so when you look at this and you say okay people are leaving christianity they're also mostly leaving an idea of god behind so if we see that this is where society is going that first question what evidence is there for god's existence is the biggest biggest question that we need to be grappling with and I periodically, I tell people on my blog's Facebook page, I say, hey, go home and ask your kids what questions that they have about God tonight. God, Jesus, the Bible, anything, just open question dinner and see what they say. And then come back and comment on Facebook with what they asked. And it's fascinating because the number one question that kids will ask, it doesn't matter what age they are, from 4 to 20 and plus, the number one question is, how do I know God exists? I see it every single time that I do this. And parents are shocked by it because they always say, gosh, I had no idea my kids were even thinking about this. My daughter goes and helps out at youth group. She volunteers at the old folks' home. Everything's great. And she was really wondering about this. So this is a giant challenge that kids are running up against in every way, shape, and form today is how do we know God exists? The second question is what is the evidence for the resurrection? And it's interesting because this is really the truth test for Christianity, right? Sometimes it sounds overwhelming. How do we know Christianity is true? Well, once we've established that God exists, Paul tells us the truth test. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. 
It's useless in some translations. So that's really what we're looking at. Was Jesus raised from the dead? And I don't know if you've heard this before, but there is a lot of historical evidence around this subject. And so that's a whole area of study that we can help our kids with. And then finally, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Looking at the reliability of the Bible, how do we know that the Gospels, for example, are based on eyewitness testimony and that we can actually trust the people who were there, who wrote these things, and that we have what they wrote that's been copied reliably over time, all these questions about the Bible. So those are kind of the three big areas. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about, but when you think of objective evidence, I want you to think of those three big areas. How do I know God exists? How do I know that Jesus was raised from the dead, which is a truth test for Christianity, and how do I know that the Bible is God's word? Part of what you're saying is kind of a methodological uh Maybe there's a fear factor with parents that they don't even want to open the door. It's, it's almost like we're afraid of the question, but we can't be afraid of the question, especially knowing that our kids are asking the question whether they would confess it or not, and because the evidence is really good. So let's just, let's just kind of park here on the existence of God question. So if, if your child said to you, Mommy, how do I know God exists? What would be one of the number one things that you would respond with? The number one thing that I would say is, that's such a great question, I'm so glad you're asking. <laughs> because in, in all honesty, a lot of kids are afraid to ask those kinds of questions. So just affirming that you want to hear the questions, that you're not afraid of the questions is such an important starting point. Never fear that you, ha you have to you know, be an expert on anything. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I would say, you know, first I want you to understand that just because we can't see God doesn't mean he doesn't exist. This is a foundational kind of comment that sounds so basic, but when you're even talking about little kids, you know, a four-year-old, it's something to help them understand. We're not just guessing. We don't have to have a blind faith. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of atheists today claim, that Christianity is all about a blind faith in Jesus and a blind faith that God exists. And they've said it so loud and so often that a lot of Christians have come to agree with this, and they think that, yes, I just have to have a blind faith and I'm going to believe that God exists. We want to communicate to our kids first and foremost, God has given us tons of evidence of his existence. And depending on your kid's age, you can do that in a lot of ways. I, my, my kids, like I said, are 10 and 9, but something that we talked about this summer a lot was that you could go outside to see the plants that we had planted. We had some bell peppers and tomatoes, things like that. And you could see before you had ever seen a caterpillar holes in the leaves, right? And so you can use these little things to talk about, well, hey, look at these holes and look at these patterns. Do you think this happened by chance or do you think that this points us to the fact that there are caterpillars here? And so you kind of have these big picture questions and notice that we're not even talking about the actual evidence yet. We're talking about a way of thinking. It's a way of helping them understand their worldview that just because I can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It may or may not, but we have to follow evidence. And God is not expecting us to just blindly guess. God has given us lots of evidence. And so I remember having these conversations when my kids were, my twins were six, and I, I just told them right then at six years old, I said, I never want you to be a Christian and grow up and believe in Jesus just because I do. So you're, you're young still, and you're too young to understand everything, but I want you to know right now that the rest of your childhood, it's my job as your parent to show you how to discover that truth for yourself, because God has given us all the evidence. You need to know how to follow it. One of the things that you put in the book, and, and going down the trail for the existence of God and what we call the cosmological argument, you quote William Lane Craig, and you say that Craig, uh, in the quote that you gave, says that the type of world that we're on right now with 
its meticulous design, the tilt of the earth, the distance of the sun and the moon, and, and so many other things, Craig says that the world begins to give you clues of what type of being had to be responsible for this. For example, six million forms of plants and animals, incredible diversity, meticulous design. One of the things that comes out in that section in your book is about DNA. And DNA has a code, and every code or language, uh, if we go back to every code and language, it was written by someone with an intellect. So the type of planet that we're on right now uh, speaks to an intelligent designer. And some of you have heard that before. And so the type of planet we're on with its complexity, with DNA, with uh, the exact distance from the sun and, and the, the other things that we could talk about tonight, reveal the type of being that would have to be responsible for this type of creation. Ray Comfort kind of simplifies it when he says, if you have a painter or a painting, you have a painter. If you have a building, you have a builder. If you have a creation, you have a creator. That's logical. That makes sense to me. But even the nature of the planet itself, and we could talk about the solar system and the universe, screams out, and this is what some of the passages like Psalm 19 and Romans 1 teach us, they cry out for an incredibly powerful uh, being. In fact, in the book you say, uh, we couldn't say a dog made the planet, right? We all, um, I think most of us love dogs, right? But, but we know a dog didn't make this planet. And do you know that some of the scientists have gotten so desperate because the evidence is so overwhelming for the evidence for a creator, they're starting to argue for intelligent um, alien life uh, starting the planet because they know Darwinian evolution just cannot explain it. So that's basically what they're doing now. Aliens shot the first life down here. That's how they try, they're trying to explain it. So that should give you a clue of the intellect that even the greatest scientists of our day see behind the planet. Any thoughts on that? Any additional thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that it, it, those are, that was a really good summary. There's a lot of kind of scientific stuff that we can we can teach our kids. And I go through some of those examples in the book and helping kids to understand it. But if it's if you have younger kids, a lot of times parents go, oh, well, that sounds like a lot. Like maybe when my kids get older. But there's so many little things. Like I gave that caterpillar example of just you know looking at what's there and explaining that that was left by by a caterpillar, even though when you can't see it. And the same thing with our bodies and the complexity of what's in our bodies. You can explain this to young child still and explaining that this is a really complex kind of code that's in our bodies and you know if you use Scrabble for example you know you can throw out letters onto the floor and say you know what kind if you line up a whole sentence of letters do you think that happened by chance or is it much more likely that there was some kind of intelligence like mommy that actually put it out there? So there are lots and lots of ways that you can communicate these things to your kids. And it just brings to mind one thing when my kids were about five and I had talked to them about this cosmological argument about how if the universe began to exist, there had to be a beginner because things don't just pop into existence on their own. So we had this whole conversation about how that beginner had to create space, time, and matter. And my daughter had a balloon, and one day she let it go, and it was going up the sky, and she said something like, oh, it's going to go up to God, it'll go to heaven. And my son, same age, they're twins, right, about five, he kind of looked at her, and he was like, oh, don't you know that God is outside of space and time? <laughs> <laughs> so they get this stuff, right? They, they get this stuff. There are, there are all kinds of ways that you can teach it to them. It's not just for, you know, the high school senior. Amen. We could talk for hours about this stuff, but I know we got to kind of get some detail on your framework. So... You've got, you talked about the what and the why. 
um, part of what you try to do also is to deal with objections to the faith, right? So you know that as you lay out this framework, you're going to have, you got to get the, the what Christianity is, why you believe it. Um, that's part of your framework. But how about the objection part, like specific objections to the Christian faith? Yeah, I, I usually think of it in terms of the last two parts are, kind of go together. So it's what others believe and then answering their objections. So the part of what others believe, I have a lot of parents who get concerned after they hear me talk about these things and they say, you know, I don't know about that what others believe part because I just want to teach my kids truth. I want them to know Christianity is true. I don't need to talk to them about what other people believe. So I just want to proactively say that that's a huge mistake. Our kids are not just going to be in their own worldview bubble growing up. They're going to be constantly rubbing up against these ideas and these other worldviews. And if they don't understand what other people believe and why they believe it, then they're not going to be prepared to really explain their own faith and to understand why it's true. So it's very much a, a matter of Christianity as well, because when kids understand other worldviews, then they're in a better position to say, oh, I can see how much better the evidence is for the truth of Christianity. And so it is sort of a comparison, and it's so important because not only for sharing their faith, but for understanding the kinds of objections, which brings us to the fourth part of the framework that you're talking about with answering challenges. So it can seem like there are millions of individual challenges that get thrown at our kids out there, and there are, but they really group together. So I, you might think of it in terms of atheists are going to have this bundle of maybe 50 key challenges that they have for Christians. And maybe if you're talking about deists, people who believe in God but don't believe that God has revealed himself in any particular way, they're going to have their own set of challenges that come toward Christians. So when you understand what other worldviews there are, you'll understand the challenges that are coming from them, and then kids are better prepared to engage with them because they can immediately see it and say, okay, well, I can see this person's an atheist, so of course they're not going to believe that God has revealed himself in the Bible because they don't believe there is a God, so I need to be talking at the God level with this person. And it, so it's really a matter of helping them think critically about these pieces of engagement and helping them understand those other worldviews. And the one other thing I would say about that, and I, this is so important to me because I see it so often, but when kids walk away from Christianity and they walk away to something like an atheistic worldview, so often they haven't even thought through the logical implications of those other worldviews. So I always hear from ex-Christians who say, I feel so free. You know, I have so much freedom now because God doesn't exist or they think that God doesn't exist. But here's the reality. They haven't thought through the fact that if all all they are is basically a bunch of molecules in motion. So just put together by blind evolutionary forces over time, they're basically molecular robots. So if they're correct, if their worldview is correct that there is no God, we're all just molecular robots. There is no freedom. There is no free will. We're just robots. And by the way, atheist philosophers, by and large, would agree with me saying that. I'm not just criticizing their worldview and claiming that's what they have to believe. Thoughtful atheist philosophers will all say this, almost all of them. Natasha, just, just to give you a quick story, I was at a school parking lot, and I was teaching fourth, fifth, and sixth graders at something called Bible Release Time. And I would go in there and teach a Sunday school-type lesson. And I went out into the parking lot, and I tried to witness to a teacher that was getting in her car and uh, I tried to hand her a gospel tract or an invitation to the church. And she basically told me, no, I don't believe that stuff anymore. I'm an atheist. And you should try it sometime because it's so freeing. And she slammed the door in my face and drove away. 
And I, I tell you, I was with someone else from the church that was helping me teach this class, and it was like just such a like empty feeling, like, oh my goodness, wow. And she seemed like bitter, like, you know, she had had probably a bad experience in the church or something happened, but that was her argument. It's so freeing to believe there's no God. And what you're saying is it's actually not. <laughs> because if you're right that there's no God, then there's no free will at all. You're just a slave to the molecules that run around in your brain. But a lot of people, the average person who just decides they're walking away from Christianity, haven't really thought through those implications. And so I always, people sometimes ask me about my own kids and say, well, what are you gonna do if your kids walk away eventually? Well, this is not in our control, okay? We always have to preface these kinds of conversations like this. Ultimately, their relationship with God is between them and God. We can only do what we are called to do on our end. But I want to know that I'm not going to regret not having taught them really thoroughly and accurately what Christianity teaches, why they should believe it, what others, including atheists, believe, and about the challenges of that worldview. So I want to make sure that my kids really understand if you're going to walk towards something, you better understand what that something is. What are the logical implications? What is involved in that worldview? Because there are questions with every worldview. If you're a Christian, I hope that you have questions about Christianity, because if you don't, I fear you haven't thought deeply about it. There are difficult questions with anything, the problem of evil and suffering and why there is so much suffering in the world. Of course, there are lots of answers that have been offered to this, but it's still tough. But atheism, too, it doesn't get you off the hook by saying, well, okay, God doesn't exist. There's so many other questions. So then free will is eliminated. There's no ultimate objective meaning. You know, did all this really happen by blind chance? Is that possible given the complexity and specificity that we see in the universe? So many questions. No matter what you believe, there are questions. That's what Dawkins basically said to his evolutionary followers, that DNA simply is and we dance to its music. And some people get sick and other people get lucky and you will find no rhyme or reason to it nor any purpose. It's just blind, random, purposeless chance. Roll the dice, lots of luck. Now, if that's true, if that's actually what the universe displays, if evolutionary theory is true and there's no God, we should not be pursuing a pie-in-the-sky, uh, non-evidential faith, right? I mean, if that's all there is, then, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and those are the facts, and you just got to deal with it. But actually, the evidence is not on their side, and they know it, and that's why they have to do this song and dance with some alien life or trying to f try to find some ex explanation. So I like what you said there. Um, Anything else on the specific challenge side? One thought I had is you did a, a nice job with grouping things because when you talk to people, it does kind of group out and you'll find some people that, you know, Eastern religions kind of all believe the same thing and then you'll find maybe a cult category and you'll find a few world religions over here that have some varying beliefs and then you'll have atheism and some agnosticism. But there's not, you know, there's not like necessarily 37 categories. There's major groupings of, you know, not that many. Yeah, so that, I think that's a good way to think about it. That's absolutely true. And I think it's really helpful for kids to understand that. That goes back to the what others believe part and why that matters so much. When I first got these challenges on my blog and I would hear all these different kinds of things, it seemed like there was just, you know, an avalanche of stuff people could say to me about Christianity. Super overwhelming. But then as I started to realize, hey, these do have natural groupings, 
it became like I could just glance through something that somebody would send me that was like a thousand words long and be like, oh, okay, this person is a relativist and thinks that all roads lead to God and they're going to you know, repeat this 50 different times into 50 different ways. So you start to see how these things tra travel together and you start to get good at saying, okay, I understand what they're saying and I understand how I would respond to that because I've studied that before. And I think it's important for us to under understand that lots of times when someone walks away from their faith, there's usually something behind that that has to do with their own personal journey or story. And we won't get into that tonight, but that's just something to think about. That oftentimes what I found, if, if someone's bitter or angry or said, you know, I, I'm no longer a Christian, there's usually something else going on. Some hurt, maybe a struggle with the problem of evil. And it's understandable. This is a, these are human dilemmas. But it's good to understand that there's, there may be something emotional going on there. Yeah, that, that's a hugely important point because I think that I get a lot of emails from parents who are heartbroken because like their teenager is walking away from faith and they want to answer specific intellectual questions because their kid is giving them all kinds of questions like how could a good God permit so much evil or how could a God ha you know, have hell? These kinds of questions. And so the parents scrambling to try to get these answers, but you can tell sometimes with the series of questions that are being posed that these are just a screen for what's actually an emotional kind of issue. And if that's the case where someone is just hurting or they have this emotional response to Christianity, you can keep answering all these questions, but that's never going to get to the heart of it. So some, some people have broken out different kinds of doubts into intellectual and emotional, for example, volitional, meaning I just don't want to believe because I don't like what the Bible teaches. So there are different shades of this, but I think that's important too when we talk to people who are adults and, and non-believers and just understanding not everyone has the intellectual qu questions or the issues, and sometimes it is emotional and we can be answering the wrong things. Amen. Okay, so we're uh, running short on time, and we're going to go to a Q&A time, but just a, a couple closing things. One, do you have three or four key practical tips that you want to give parents and grandparents and great-grandparents tonight, uncles and aunts, that would be helpful, someone mentoring someone that's younger than, than them? Three or four practical tips on how to apply this at home or if they're meeting with somebody, what would you say? Yeah, and I could talk about this forever, so I'll try to keep them short. Uh, it, it, is, it is hard to narrow them down because there's so much that you can do. If, if you had said just one thing, though, I do know what that one thing is, and that is to commit to continually deepening your own understanding of these things, of what Christianity teaches, why you should believe it, what others believe, and how to respond to challenges. You can't pass on to your kids what you don't know. You just can't. And the number one question that I get from parents through my blog is, what book can I give to my kids? Everyone wants to give their kids a book. But we are the primary spiritual influencers in the lives of our kids. It's not about a one-time process of learning these answers. It's about walking day to day, continuously having your radar up of seeing these kinds of opportunities to talk with your kids. So if you're not sure where to start with that, actually, if you go on my website, it's natashacrane.com, just like my name, there's a resources tab. And on that tab, from all these books that I've read over the last few years in my, my search for these kinds of answers, I put together different reading plans. So if you want to learn more about the evidence for God's existence, I've given you five books there. If you want to know about the resurrection, I've given you books there. So you can get some of those resources. But just commit to deepening your own understanding. That's first and foremost, because you can't do anything else if you don't have that. 
Uh, the second thing is to create and use moments to talk about these things. So once you have done something to deepen your understanding, and by the way, you don't have to be an expert to do that. Again, I just want to emphasize that. Maybe you've read one book or listened to one podcast. Whatever it is you've done, use moments as they come up, and you will start to see these everywhere. You will have your worldview radar up. And just to give you a simple example of that, Anytime you watch a movie, you're going to catch things that are not consistent with a Christian worldview. Is anyone shocked by that? <laughs> no, absolutely not, right? Disney movies included. So the, the example I love to give people is the number one Disney movie message is follow your heart. This is not consistent with a Christian worldview. The heart is deceitful above all things. We are to follow Jesus not our heart. So you watch a precious little Disney movie and then you can have this kind of conversation, right? It's about using these, these moments. And I have my kids always on the lookout for bad logic things like that or secular wisdom is what we call it in my house. And they will find signs at stores on the, you know, the shelves. Like we went to the 99 cent store one day, my son comes around the corner holding up a sign that says, love is all you need. He was like, really? You know, he's 10, but he can see that. He, he, really, he's like, really, love is all you need? I mean, that's just bad logic, whether you're talking about religion or anything else. So use those moments, and you will find them all the time. It's not a one-time teaching thing. It is an ongoing basis. But the second part of that that I said is to create moments. There are lots and lots of subjects that you need to be talking about with your kids that there might not be a tidy, teachable moment that happens to come up for. So this is part of knowing that mountain, like I was talking about earlier. When you know that mountain and you know, for example, that people want to say that the Bible supports slavery, maybe you don't happen to see a sign about that in the grocery store. Maybe your kid doesn't happen to run into it. You need to be the one who understands the mountain and proactively brings up these questions, whether your kids ask them or not. So be very proactive. And then the third thing, if I'm limited to the three, I'll try to be brief. Uh, the third thing I would say is ask your, your kids what questions they have. So I mentioned that earlier. And just really do it on a regular basis. And tell your kids, I really want to know what questions you have. And it teaches them that you have nothing to fear, that you're not worried because you know Christianity is true. So please, ask questions. And you'll see as they ask these questions over time, the things that are on their minds, the things they're thinking about. And don't worry if you can't answer the questions. There are always questions that we can't answer. And you say, that's an awesome question. Let's figure out how to answer that together. And that's a really important thing to do because where does everyone go to answer questions? The internet right? They're going to Google. Do you think all the information on Google is great, well-sourced Christian material? <laughs> Absolutely not. Go on there and Google, did Jesus exist? And have fun reading all those articles. So it's a good opportunity, actually, if you don't know an answer, or even if you say, hey, let's figure out where to go. What are some good sources for this? And when you talk about opportunities, just, you know, watching a ball game with my kids, uh, the commercials anymore. I mean, that could bring up uh, questions all day long about what we believe and you know, what other people are saying about life and worldview and all of that. Okay, um, we're going to wrap up, but uh, some encouragement. So what would you say to those who have sat here for about the last 40, 45 minutes and they're a bit overwhelmed with the, the task ahead of them? What, what's the uh, encouragement that you have for them? Like what, what uh, piece of information would you give them? My warm fuzzy. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think the first thing is just to acknowledge, and this might not be encouraging, but it's just truth, but to acknowledge that just because something's overwhelming doesn't mean it's not important. 
So if you leave here thinking it's overwhelming, therefore I'm not going to do anything, that's the ultimate opposite of what I, I hope you'll come away from here doing. I want you to come away from here saying, I might feel overwhelmed, or this sounds like a lot, but I realize it's important, and if I care that my kids grow up to know and love Jesus, I understand that in today's world, this is the mountain that they're going to climb, and I need to prepare them. Therefore, I'm going to do something. And so my warm, fuzzy part of the encouragement is to say, just do one thing. You don't have to feel like you have to go out there and do everything. You don't have to use your iPad while you're drying your hair. You don't have to read in the grocery store line like I was talking about. You don't have to do that. But just do one thing. Take one step. It's that simple. And maybe it's you're, you're more of a listener. Maybe you can look for an apologetics podcast, for example. Or if you are more of a video watcher, there are numbers and numbers of these wonderful apologetics videos. Stand to Reason, uh, one of my favorite ministries, they have some wonderful videos, that, or the One Minute Apologist. The videos aren't exactly one minute, but they're close. Uh, they're, they're short little videos that answer all kinds of questions. So whatever it is that's best for you to learn, take one step, do one thing.